0: Perhaps uh, the best-known scientific celebrity of the past couple of decades was Carl Sagan. He was a renowned uh, astronomer, uh, not to mention an agnostic, uh, an atheist, actually, who seemed bent on destroying any belief in biblical creationism and theism. He became uh, a leading voice for naturalism, that is, that everything has a natural cause and a natural explanation. And his tribe has increased dramatically over the last 40 or 50 years. In fact, if I can take an aside to this uh, illustration, I recently read one religious leader's attempt within the church to explain away the miracle of Jesus walking on the water uh, by postulating that Christ actually was walking on floating pieces of ice, How do you suggest that with a straight face? That's what I want to know. That's naturalism. Uh, Relative of naturalism, of course, is evolution. Everything can be explained by natural processes. However, uh, this system of belief requires great faith. And so it isn't surprising that Carl Sagan uh, was led to give the universe itself uh, divine attributes, Listen to what he repeated on every show that aired on television each week. And I quote, The universe is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. Ladies and gentlemen, all the scientists in the world, including Carl Sagan, could never scientifically measure all that was, and all that is, and all that is to come. That is a statement of faith. They take their leap of faith and attribute omniscience and omnipotence to the universe or to Mother Nature. She gives life. She created all there is. She orders all there is. This is nothing less than the religion of nature. This is the deification of of the universe. But it really doesn't get rid of an omniscient eternal being. It just changes who that being is. So Sagan looked at the universe and came to the conclusion that nothing was greater than what he saw. You know, I I thought about it as I was researching for today's message. If you fell asleep 75 years ago and you woke up today To learn that our politically correct views regarding origins and the evolution of man and the deification of nature and all of that, you learn of that, you would be convinced that our intelligence is not developing forward, but going backward. It's true. Paul said that it would be a sign of uh, of an intellectual digression in any culture to cast off the creator and deify creation. He said in Romans chapter 1 verse 22, they profess to be wise but they become fools as they set aside the creator for the creation. And so today for people in our world to consider a tree or the sun to be self-conscious relatives of humanity, the human race, is simply one more step downward, one more step backward toward foolishness. Let me give you some fresh examples Two recent transcripts that came across National Public Radio were related to a journalistic uh, contest that invited articles on personal values and beliefs. One elderly woman who grew up just like you did, and I did, in fact, from a mainline Protestant church, which she now abandoned, she was writing this, and I'm quoting her, I am sitting on our small deck knitting... And resting old legs, entertained by my spiritual sister, an equally old pine tree. She is at least as old as I am. She leans a bit, so do I. We both soak in the sun and the air and try our best to live lightly in our worlds. One day in the not too distant future, she will fall and fertilize the earth and so will I. It's a consoling thought. What about that exactly is consoling? She writes, I have lost my traditional heaven and hell beliefs. There are those who want to give my life more importance than the tree. I don't believe them. Never mind the fact that she's sitting on a wooden deck as she writes this. (laughs) They think there is a special place for me somewhere in eternity, but I don't believe them. I believe my tree and all other living things believe and feel in their particular living way. 75 years ago, you'd have said, no way. Today we say, ho-hum. Another author, this one a published poet and a professor at the University of New Mexico, writes in her article dated July 8, 2007, I believe in the sun, S-U-N. In the, in the tangle of human failures of fear, greed, and forgetfulness, the sun gives me clarity. The sun is our relative and illuminates our path on this earth. Humans are vulnerable and rely on the kindnesses of the earth and sun. Do you hear in that how creation or how uh, uh, the attributes of the creator are given over to the sun? She writes, humans rely on the kindnesses of the earth and the sun. One day recently, I walked out of a hotel room just off Times Square at dawn to find the sun. It was the fourth morning since the birth of my fourth granddaughter. I had bundled up the baby and carried her outside. And I held her up and presented her to the sun so she would be recognized as a relative so that she wouldn't forget this connection, this promise, so that we would all remember the sacredness of life, end quote. How tragic to not understand that to give the Son the attributes of God is to void the sacredness of life. Mankind is nothing more than an animal with no more dignity or personal worth than an old man pine tree. Paul wrote of this in Romans 1, the unbeliever becomes futile in their speculations and their foolish heart is darkened. They suppress the truth of a creator and elevate creation. In 1996, Carl Sagan died. Less than three weeks before he died, he was interviewed by Ted Koppel on Nightline. Sagan knew he was dying and Koppel asked him, Dr. Sagan, do you have any pearls of wisdom to leave the human race? To which Sagan responded rather bleakly, and I quote him, We live, this is his immediate response, We live on a hunk of rock and metal, circling a humdrum star that is one of 400 billion other stars in the Milky Way. This is well worth pondering. End quote. That's it. It is it. Because the religion of naturalism and the faith of evolution and even the mystical reaches of pantheism lead ultimately to the utter insignificance of humanity which then naturally leads to despair. All you and I are going to do like the trees is fall over one day and ultimately fertilize some plot of ground. Listen to the despair and utter sense of insignificance and, and a little bit of panic from a book published by Sagan near the end of his life in which he wrote, and by the way, this never gets any press, so you're probably hearing it for the first time. And I quote, Our planet is a speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come to save us from ourselves. End quote. If only he had read and believed the record of Job. There is help. There is hope. Because there is a creator who is our redeemer. Amen? God eventually speaks to Job. The encounter we have longed for and fully expected has come to pass. The amazing thing is that as God begins to speak, comfort. God begins by giving Job a lesson on creationism, not suffering. Instead of answering Job's questions and ours about why bad things happen to good people and why good things happen to bad people, God simply rehearses his power and his providence over all that he has created. Listen, evidently to the mind of God, understanding that He alone is the creator of of all that is, brings a person back from the edge of despair and a sense of insignificance with its accompanying bitterness and breathes new perspective and fresh faith into his heart. So before we dive back in, let me just remind you, ladies and gentlemen, that these chapters are for believers. It won't breathe faith into the unredeemed, only more skepticism. The unbeliever will look at these chapters and say, you believe that? You have faith in him? But for those of us who believe, this tour around God's creation will bolster our faith and give us fresh new joy in the greatness and glory of God, which has a way of settling our fears and quieting our hearts. For Isaiah said, thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is anchored, stayed, occupied with thee. God speaks to Job out of the whirlwind and says in verse 4, let's pick it up where we left off last time, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Now, would you notice that God doesn't begin four chapters of a response by proving to Job that he was the one who created the earth? He just begins with a reminder that Job wasn't there when he did it. Just as in Genesis 1, we don't begin with a proof of God. We simply are introduced to him. Were you there when I set the measurements or stretched the line on it? Verse 6, on on what were its bases sunk? Sunk. Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? God was the eyewitness to the beginning. Because of special revelation that inspired Scripture you've turned to, you hold in your lap, you've been given the only eyewitness account of the very beginning of time from the Creator Himself. It was Herbert Spencer, philosopher and early enthusiastic advocate of Darwinism, who outlined five scientific ideas that he believed categorized everything that science could investigate, time, force, action, space, and matter. He believed that everything that could be known could fit into one of those five categories. However, as with all naturalistic dead-ended theories, he had to give at least one of those things, eternality since no evolutionary process could account for the origin of any of them. So at least one of them had to spawn the other four. And even though he couldn't account for the origin of time, force, action, space, and matter, he believed correctly that these five could categorize everything. In the opening lines of God's special revelation, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, and reiterated here in, in chapter 38 of Job, you have all five, in the beginning that's time. In the beginning, God, that's force. In the beginning, God created, that's action. In the beginning, God created the heavens, that's space. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that's matter. In those few opening lines, God reveals the origin of everything. And Nehemiah, centuries later, will pray in chapter 9, you alone are Yahweh. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything. Now in these first 15 verses or so of Job 38, God will quiz Job on the origins and the workings of earth, sea, and sky. God asks, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Verse four. Set its measurements, stretched the line on it. Verse five. Sunk its bases or literally dug the foundations and laid its cornerstone. Verse six. God is speaking here in the language of an architect and builder. I have watched this campus be built and I understand this language I've watched it being surveyed, measured. I have watched as God speaks to Job of the earth, the measurements, exact measurements, are followed by the blueprints as the foundations are dug and poured and the block laid correctly and the cornerstone squarely. In other words, God is saying, Job, were were you there to check my blueprints? Did I need you? Did I have to have you consult with me to make sure the precise measurements necessary for sustaining life were followed? That Job has already delivered the staggering truth in chapter 26, verse 7 that God stretches out the north over the empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Not the back of a huge turtle. You can take that leap of faith if you wish. Or an elephant. Billions believe that, or millions do, or on the shoulders of Atlas. He says nothing. Job is actually revealing a a scientific truth that we now better understand. The north-pointing axis of the earth is extended indefinitely beyond the boundaries of the earth's surface, pointing to the polar star and orienting then both the geography of the earth and the starry heavens. One believing scientist writes, Job is telling us not only that the earth was suspended in space, but also that it rotates about its north projecting axis, maintained in its orbit by a mysterious force, and still it's mysterious today, we call it the law of what? Gravity, which could just as rationally be called nothing, or better yet, for the believer, the will of God. And since no human being was there to see God do it, you either believe the record of God or come up with your own man-made theory. It's interesting, however, to live long enough, as some of us have lived now, to hear that the rock-solid theory of the Big Bang has developed cracks. In John MacArthur's excellent book, if you'd like to do a little more research, he's done a lot of cataloging in this book that I have relied on, among others, called The Battle for the Beginning. He writes scientists who hold to the big bang theory must explain how a universe full of matter appeared out of nowhere. And he quotes from an article in the Los Angeles Times that reported, and I quote that article, "The big bang theory is uh, looking more supernatural all the time." About 20 years ago, the late Carl Sagan, remember him? famously said, "Listen, the big bang science would eventually show that the universe was created without any creator. Since then, however, just in the last 20 years, the picture's changed. Now there is a growing theory within Big Bang thinking called cosmic inflation, which holds that the entire universe popped out of a point with no content, no dimensions, expanding instantaneously to its current size. This is now being taught... At Stanford, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and other top schools, this explanation of the beginning of the universe bears, this article said, haunting similarity to the traditional theological notion of creation out of nothing. This article went on to quote one of the world's foremost astronomers, Alan Sandage, of the observatories of the Carnegie Institution in Pasadena, who recently proposed if you can believe this, that the Big Bang could only be understood as a, quote, miracle in which some higher force must have played a role. Can you imagine being dead for only 11 years after you make the statement that the Big Bang theory is going to prove you don't need a creator? Now, MIT and the Carnegie Institute is saying that the Big Bang doesn't, remove the necessity of a divine being. It's actually revealing the necessity for one in 11 years. If you want to know how the world began, you just get the information from the only source who can tell you. No human being observed the process of that original moment. No human being can repeat the process. Now there were other eyewitnesses to the details of the earth's creation. They're mentioned here in verse 7. The morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. In Job chapter 1, the sons of God are a reference to angels who come to present themselves before God. And you remember, Satan is among them, already fallen. Uh, This here in verse 7 is what we call poetic parallelism. The morning stars are the same beings as the sons of God. In fact, according to the account given in Genesis 1, physical stars, which we see when we go outside at night, were created on the fourth day. Exodus 20 adds to the testimony of Genesis 1 that all things were created during the six days of creation. So angels weren't created than eons before Genesis 1. So for angels to be able to rejoice over the creation of the earth on day three, according to Job chapter 38, we can safely assume that we're not specifically told that angels were created during the first day of creation along with light. This host of heaven was created fully capable, mature, able and willing to sing the glories of their creator God. Just as Adam and Eve were created fully grown and mature, all of the uh, the vegetation of Genesis 1, the trees already bearing fruit, already mature. The light of stars, billions of light years away, already reaching earth. So Adam and Eve were capable immediately of worshiping God, of communicating with God. They didn't have to learn how to talk over a two-year period. They didn't have to learn how to walk over the course of many months. So also the angels were created immediately, fully capable, fully given the intellectual capacity, endowed with enough memory to know that this is the creator they are now to sing to and to serve. John Hartley wrote in his New International Commentary on Job this interesting concept. In ancient times, the laying of a foundation stone for a public building, such as a temple, was a high occasion. It was commemorated by a celebration with music and praise. God informs Job here in chapter 38 that on the occasion of laying earth's cornerstone, the angels were assembled as an angelic host or chorus, to sing praises to God and the glory of his world. Of course, this is another subject, but it would also imply then that somewhere between day one and the temptation of Eve in the Garden of Eden, Satan has fallen. He'll try to seize the throne of God as he leads an uprising which resulted in the fall of millions of angels, still led to this day by Lucifer, whose destruction is ever Nearer. Now let's move on. God quizzes Job on the sea. He moves from questions regarding the origin of earth to questions regarding the sea. Look at verse 8. Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? Uh, now several ancient uh, Near Eastern myths attempt to explain the origin of the sea or the oceans. Uh, we have extant... The Enuma Elish from Babylon, we have the Baal cycle from Ugarit. They, they recount this fierce battle in which their supreme deity battled against the sea and won the right to rule by defeating the sea gods and goddesses. Epic battles took place in order for them to conquer the sea, the ocean. In total contrast to mythical thought, the sea here in Job 38 is spoken of as a newborn infant. Verse 8, God puts a diaper of darkness on it. Verse 9, clothes it in pajamas. He puts it, verse 10, in a playpen designed by himself. He puts up the baby gate. He places boundaries and doors. In verse 11, he placed restrictions that the sea immediately submitted to. There wasn't an epic battle. It responded immediately to his voice. God said in verse 11, Thus far you shall come, but no farther, and here shall your proud waves stop. Our creator instituted all the necessary secondary causes, which we now understand much better, The tides, which are wonderfully designed, consistent with his plan to care for the ecosystems of our world. Science has discovered the amazing effects of the moon upon our ocean tides. Let me share with you some of what I've learned. This is just a a rehash of what we should have learned in high school. and I don't know why it seems I'm learning it for the first time. Ocean tides are caused by the moon's gravitational pull. The moon circles the earth and completes a full orbit every 27.3 days, traveling almost a million and a half miles every month. It goes faster than any of you or me. As the moon orbits around the earth, it causes the earth to swell ever so slightly. The earth actually bulges toward the moon And this is what affects the water level of the oceans. As the earth rotates on its axis, those bulges sort of ripple across the face of the earth, creating two high tides and two low tides every day. Just this one characteristic of planet earth and its bodies of water is absolutely vital to sustaining life on planet earth. Scientists have now spent nearly $20 billion trying to answer the question of how the moon evolved. The record of Scripture tells us it was accomplished by the creative power and the Word of God on the fourth day. Job is reminded by God here in verses 8 through 11 that the movement, that the boundaries of bodies of water is determined, it is directed, through those secondary causes, by his creative handiwork. Listen, I have it all under control. That's that's the early message of God to Job. Things Job really didn't fully understand, he records in this special revelation, and we're just beginning to learn more and more of what God meant. God now moves from questions about the earth and questions about the sea to questions about the sky. Verses 12 to 15. Notice God's questions to Job in verse 12. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? Hey, Job, have you ever created a new day? It might be helpful to have your thoughts provoked as mine, as one author brought up the context of Job's ancient world. On the first day of creation, God commanded the light into existence. Each dawn thereafter was, in the ancients' mind, considered a reenactment of that first day. The ancients didn't view nature as a system of mechanical laws. They didn't consider the succession of days to be guaranteed. They believed that God created each new day. So God is virtually asking Job... Can you create tomorrow? Can you reenact the miracle? Can you cause light to appear? Of course, the answer is what? Well, give me a chance in a billion years or so, and I'll do it. Just watch. No. The answer is no. Well, today we understand that the heavenly bodies of light, primarily the sun, created by God in the heavens on the fourth day, accomplishes this, we also understand that the tilt of the earth's axis, the exact makeup of the sun, the exact distance between the sun and earth, creates wonderful new dawns and dark nights. Then again, God's perfect handiwork is an amazing thing to further discover. Today we know that the rotation of the earth on its axis is what determines a 24-hour day. The moon orbits around the earth determining our months. The earth's revolutions around the sun determine our years. By the way, did you know there isn't anything that determines a week? Nothing other than Genesis 1 and the creation of the first week, which we now use and we scramble to keep up with and we get behind every week, don't we? Even the precise tilt of the earth's axis is vital in maintaining earth's seasons One author wrote, imagine how different life would be if the earth suddenly began rotating at one-third its current speed. Days would be three times longer. (laughs) How many moms of two-year-olds would (laughs) would like that? (laughs) We would be forced to stagger our sleep so that sometimes we would sleep during sunlight hours and remain awake during long hours of darkness the variation in daytime and nighttime temperatures would be dramatically altered. Every rhythm of our lives would be overthrown. But all of life on earth is perfectly suited to a 24-hour day. And according to Scripture, that is because the same Creator who made all living things also determined and fixed the length of our days. And aren't you glad that the days aren't any longer than they are? Charles Boyle, a brilliant thinker and devoted Christian, lived a long time ago, was fascinated with Kepler's and Newton's discoveries about planetary motion and the intricate design of the universe. Boyle actually hired um, a watchmaker to design an actual working, a mechanical model of the solar system, which he set up in one of the rooms of his home that demonstrated the motion of the planets. They were all orbiting. Some planets going the opposite way of other planets that we have, that we know. Doesn't make any sense, apart from a creator. It was an incredible display of skill and precision. On one occasion, Boyle was showing the model to uh, an atheistic um, colleague, scientist, who was extremely impressed with the clockwork model. And the atheist asked... This is an impressive model. Who made it for you? And Boal responded with a grin, no one. It just happened. (laughs) (laughs) Listen to David, who writes, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts, the stars and planets... He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Isn't that the rub, by the way? Let all the earth respect and reverence and worship the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The counsel of the Lord stands forever the plans of his heart from generation to generation, earth, water, and sky, created by the word of the Lord, by the breath of his mouth. And we find our hope, along with Job, in him. We find our peace and joy in him. We find the answer to our questions, which is ultimately him. We find our future securely bound up In him. For these angels who rejoiced at the creation of earth, sky and water, imagine they celebrate the conversion of a new creation, you and me. They also sing around the throne of God, and one day with all redeemed. We will together praise the Creator God who has set us free forever. And what of the world that does not believe that continue on in their ever-increasing panic to find an answer that replaces God before whom they will stand? I encourage you today to submit to Him. If you have not believed in Him, do so today you will one day stand before him either as your judge or your redeemer. One noted physicist wrote an article that was placed in the Wall Street Journal in 2005, January 20th. Listen to the sense of panic. He says, the latest data from space satellites are unmistakable. Our universe is dying. As the universe accelerates, temperatures will plunge. Billions of years from now, the stars will have exhausted their nuclear fuel, the oceans will freeze, the sky will become totally dark, and the universe will consist of dead neutron stars, black holes, and nuclear debris. It seems as if the iron laws of physics have issued us a death warrant. But there is still one hope. Leave the universe. (laughs) Do the laws of physics allow for the creation of wormholes connecting our universe to a younger, more hospitable universe? In 2021, a new space probe will be launched which may be able to prove or disprove these conjectures. There is no choice. Can a gateway be built To connect our universe with another? Either we leave for another universe or we die in this one. Ladies and gentlemen, he has the right idea. Leave this universe for another one. He just doesn't know how. He's right in a way. Planet Earth and the universe as we see it will not last forever. How do we know? The revelation of God which informs us about the origins of this world informs us about the end of this present world. Peter writes these rather astonishing words that not only agree with the record of Genesis and Job but give further revelation about the future. Listen. By the word of God, by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Reference to the universal flood. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for what? Fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men in which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat but there's hope according to his promise we are looking for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells you really do want to leave this earth my friend, and a gateway has been built from this world to the next, but it is a narrow gateway. And few are willing to stoop and enter therein. Perhaps you have. Perhaps you will today by God's redeeming grace. And when you come to God in awe of who he is and what his son accomplished you on the cross and through the empty tomb, you will, you will leave this earth and one day inherit a new earth and a new universe where we will live with all the believers of all the ages of time and the hosts of heaven with our creator God forever. I highly recommend you make plans to leave this world for the new world, which is yet to come. Father, thank you for the record of Scripture, special revelation that has told us of things past when there was no one to see but you. And then on that day when the hosts of heaven were created, they sang the glory of you, our creator God, in establishing the earth, the sky, and the sea. And you kept your promise... Your promise was that a redeemer would come and your judgment was seen on this earth in that great flood. Just as you kept your word, with that you will keep your word that this present earth and universe is reserved for fire. And also the further promise that you will create a new heaven and a new earth. And we will be eyewitnesses to that creation. Thank you. My friend, if you don't know where you stand with this creator God, you better make a plan. It's been delivered, just accept it. May today be the day when you make a reservation for the world to come. Thank you, Father, for the privilege we have had today as an assembly to worship you and to raise our voices and praise you, Creator God, for who you are. We thank you in Jesus' name.